Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 to 11. This is the word of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Good evening. Thanks so much for your, I think, fourth time. You've given me a round of applause. I really feel like I'm milking it now. But uh, thank you so much. Um, thank you also for your prayers and your phone calls throughout the week. I've had phone calls, texts from people from here, and we so appreciate it. So thank you so much for remembering us. Um, it really is a fantastic privilege to minister the word, um, and what a privilege it is to do so tonight. So why don't you turn back to Genesis 37, and I'm going to begin in verse 2, because I think that's where a natural section begins, verse 2, 2 down to 11. So let me pray, and then we'll look at it a little bit more closely. Lord God, we thank you so much for the privilege of coming into your word tonight, and we pray that you would open it to our minds and our hearts, and that you would draw us to the Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Family history. How well do you know your family history? Back in March 22, uh, I decided to take Danielle on a nice romantic trip two months before I popped the question. So I took her away for the day, just for one day. I put on a nice crisp shirt put on my clean brown shoes, picked her up early in the morning, drove for about an hour, and arrived at the destination of my choice, a graveyard. <laughs> and for the next hour and a half, we spent our day in a graveyard. 
Now, it wasn't the only thing we did that day, and we didn't spend a whole day there, but our day was very, very important because family history can help you to understand something more about who a person is and what they're really like. This evening, we turn to a passage in the Bible that begins a new section in the book of Genesis that's famous for the story of Joseph. And I wonder if when you hear that word Joseph, I wonder what springs to mind. Maybe you think of the school plays where you or a child or a grandchild performed. Maybe you think of the West End musical where you were entertained. Maybe you think of the coat of many colors or the drama of the brothers. What do you think of when you hear the word Joseph? Maybe some of those things come to mind. But none of those things are what this story is really all about. Instead, if you come with me to verse 2, notice how this section begins. It begins with the phrase, these are the generations. That phrase appears repeatedly throughout the book of Genesis. And every time you see it, Whatever comes next is explaining the fulfillment of God's purposes in the world. And from chapters 11 and 12, when God comes to Abraham, a passage that we'll be all too familiar with by now, and promises to form a people for himself and bless them and lead them from a foreign land to a new land and make them great, God fulfills his promises through Abraham's son Isaac, and then his grandson Jacob, out of which he makes a mighty nation of people. As God fulfills his promises within his people in fulfillment of his purposes in the world. And so it's no surprise that notice the line that the focus of this section is not on Joseph, it's on Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob, the father of a nation of people, the people of God. Which means that the story of Joseph is not so much about Joseph as it is about the people of God and their history. As it really formally begins at this point in the book of Genesis and is developed from here on after. This is a story about the history of God's people and God fulfilling his promises within their midst as he fulfills his purposes in the world. And as we come into the introduction of the history of God's people, what we're going to see is what God's people are really like. So that it might shape how we view ourselves and how we live as God's people today. So what is the history of God's people and how does it relate to us? Well, as much as this is a story of the history of God's people, I want you to notice the next word in the Bible. Joseph. As much as this is a story of God's people, Joseph takes center stage. Which means that the history of God's people centers around a son. 
And given that the son is Joseph, which according to chapter 30, is someone born out of the people of God, this is a son who arises from within the people of God. Notice the description we're given of him. He was pasturing his flock. This is a shepherd's son. Notice what else we're told. He was 17. He was a boy. See that phrase, boy? Typically associated with a servant in the Old Testament. He was a servant shepherd son. Notice what he does. He was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Bilhah and Zilpah were the servants of Rachel and Leah. If you remember back to Genesis 29, Rachel was Jacob's beloved bride. Leah was her sister who he was forced to marry. And given that he married these servants in order to have children and only to have children, they're presented in the book of Genesis, as some people describe it, as his secondary wives. And given that Joseph is with the sons of Jacob's secondary wives, Joseph is presented as a humble son. Notice what we're told he does. He brings a bad report. That's the same word used of sin in Genesis 3. He reports on the sin of his brothers, who in contrast to them, he's presented as a pure and a righteous son. And notice how his father views him. We're told that he loved him more than any of his sons. That seems striking, doesn't it? How could he do that? Well, context is key. Joseph was the son of Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's beloved bride. But Genesis tells us that Rachel was barren. She was unable to have a son. And it seemed impossible that she would ever have a son right into Jacob's old age until God came and opened her womb. Which means that Joseph is a son of grace. Joseph is a son in whom God displays the abundance of his amazing grace. That's why he's so loved. And notice what his father does to this son of grace. He gives him a robe which is not so much about displaying color as it is according to 2 Samuel 13, about setting him aside to reign with royal rule over his brothers. But all of those verses are telling us is that the history of God's people is one that centers upon a son of grace. One who, unlike all of his brothers, is pure and righteous. Who's called to be a humble shepherd servant and yet exalted. To reign. To royally reign. So that through his reign over his brothers, God might fulfill his promises within his people. As he fulfills his purposes in the world. For the history of God's people 
is one that centers upon a son of grace. But there's a problem. Because we're told that his brothers hated him. They hated him. A number of years ago, I was living in Savannah in Georgia. don't know if you've been to Savannah in the deep American South. But I lived there for a while, and I loved it. But one of the delicacies of living in Savannah is that it's full of snakes. Now, I don't know if you're a bit unusual and you like snakes, but I cannot stand them. I cannot have them. I cannot stand the way they look or look at you. I cannot stand the way they make noises and their sounds. I can't stand the way they move. I can't stand the way they roll up into a ball. I cannot have anything to do with them. So as much as I love my time in Savannah, I did spend half the time looking around for snakes. I couldn't have them. Here we're told that the history of God's people is one that revolves around, that centers upon a son. But his brothers were told hate him to the point that they could not even speak peacefully about him. Which is another way of saying that they cannot have anything to do with him. They can't have him. They cannot have who he is. He is the center of the history of God's people. They can't have it. They cannot have what he represents. Grace. They cannot have how he lives. He lives in purity and righteousness. They can't have it. They cannot have what he does. He upholds royal rule. And given that he is the one that the biblical narrative focuses upon, that he is the one that God raises up so that through him, God would fulfill his promises within his people, the reason they hate him is because they hate the God who raises him up. It's a problem that began back in Genesis 3 when a serpent, a serpent through Adam and Eve invited the whole of humanity to turn against God and to hate him. So it's absolutely no surprise that when God raises this son up and focuses the history of his people around him, when this son is one that displays the grace of God and lives in righteousness and purity according to the word of God and upholds royal reign so that through him God will fulfill the purposes and promises of God. It's no surprise they hate him because they hate the God behind him. Which means that the history of God's people centers upon a son and everybody's hatred of him. Which raises a question. How could God fulfill his promises through Joseph? If God raises up Joseph to rule and reign, and through his rule and reign, he'll fulfill his purposes through him, and yet nobody's listening to him. How can God fulfill his promises through him? 
Once again, it's not background. We're told about his dreams. Now, dreams in the Old Testament are a way in which God reveals his word. You find it in Genesis 20 with Abimelech. You find it in 31 with Laban and with Jacob. You find that often throughout the Old Testament, God reveals his word through dreams, and it continues right up until the New Testament when the fullness of God's word is given. And what later becomes the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's why God does not communicate in the same way today. Because the fullness of his revelation, his word, has been given. But at this point in the history of God's people, God is giving his word, speaking through dreams. And I want you to notice what he communicates. Because through this picture we're given of sheaves, grain, the sheaves of his brother, bowing down to Joseph's sheaves, What he's communicating is that there is coming a time when in spite of the sin of his brothers, when in spite of the hatred of his brothers, they will nevertheless recognize his royal rule. And notice, it's not just Jacob's or Joseph's immediate brothers he's speaking about. Because through the sun and moon, which verse 10 tells us represents his father and mother, and 11 stars, which according to chapter 2, refers to the people of God more generally. It's not just his immediate brothers who will recognize his rule. It's the people of God more generally. The whole household of God will one day come to recognize his royal reign. Something which even Jacob were told is so astounded by that he finds almost impossible to believe. It's something that can only be fulfilled by God. In spite of the sin of Joseph's brothers, we'll nevertheless find a way to humble them that they may one day come to recognize his rule and reign as God fulfills his promises within his people, in fulfillment of his purposes in the world. Which means that the history of God's people, what later becomes known as the church, is one that centers upon a son of grace and everybody's hatred of him. And yet in spite of their sin, God's willingness to nevertheless find a way to humble them to accept his rule as he fulfills his promises in their midst. I know I've mentioned this before to some of you, but one of my weird loves in life is the Gaither Vocal Band. The other week when Andrew Peterson mentioned the Gaither Vocal Band, I know there's one or two people here tonight who probably inwardly cheered. I did. If you're not familiar with the Gaither Vocal Band, they are a very cheesy American Christian music group. I mean, they are cheesy. The cheddar is oozing out of the Gaither Vocal Band. It is every kind of cheese you can think of dripping out of the Gaither Vocal Band. But I love them. I love them. There's something about them I just love. And of all the songs that they sing, 
the number one that moves me the most is their version of it is well with my soul. If you've never heard it, I challenge you to go home tonight and watch it on YouTube. I mean, the shoulder pads are worth saying alone. If you listen to their version of it as well with my soul and you listen to it, by the end of verse one, you will think, wow, that was amazing. But then comes verse two. If you thought verse one was good, you want to hear verse two. It's so much better than verse one. But then comes verse three, where the whole song crescendos. And if you thought verse 1 was good and you thought verse 2 was better, verse 3 will probably blow your head off. Reading the Bible in the Old Testament is a bit like that version of a Gaither vocal band song. Because when you read Genesis 37, you are reading real history. And as you read on into chapter 37, you see exactly how this unfolds. Where out of their hatred for their brother, Joseph's brothers seek his death. They strip him of his royal robe. They sell him off into slavery and hope that he dies. And yet in spite of their sin, God nevertheless works in and through their sin to lead him to Egypt. A foreign land where he will be raised to rule with royal rule. So that in the midst of sin and chaos that his brothers find themselves in, as Joseph rules royally, his brothers are forced to recognize his reign and bow to him. As God continues to fulfill his promises amongst his people, preparing his people to lead them out of a foreign land and take them into a new promised land as he continues to bless them and build them and make them great in fulfillment of his promises. Because what you're reading in Genesis 37 is the real history of God's people. But that's only verse 1. There's a whole other layer to this story. Because as God raises up Joseph, a son, what he does is a pattern for the whole of the Old Testament. God raises up sons within the people of God. Think about people like Moses, David, Solomon, people in whom he will display his grace. People who are called to be humble servants and yet uphold his royal rule so that as they live in righteousness and purity in accordance with God's word, God will fulfill his promises of making a mighty nation of people and of blessing them and of leading them into the promised land and leading them to live in the promised land as he makes them great and dwells with them in this life and into the life to come. See, what you see in Genesis 37 in many ways is a pattern for the whole of the history of God's people in the Old Testament. But there's a third and final layer to this story. The greatest crescendo of all. 
For as much as God will raise up sons, not one, not one, not one of the sons that he will raise up in the whole of the Old Testament will see the fulfillment of all of his promises. And not one of his sons will display the fullness of God's grace. Not one son will live in true righteousness and true purity in all of their life. And not one will truly and faithfully uphold royal rule in accordance with his word. And every single one will die for another to come along. Until you get to the Gospels. And when you get to the Gospels, Matthew begins his Gospel with one line. The genealogy of. It's the exact same wording as this. These are the generations of. As Matthew introduces us to the ultimate installment, the ultimate story of God fulfilling his promises as he fulfills his purposes in the world, it's a story, he says, of Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of grace, God's only son who would leave the majesty of heaven and step into this sin-stained world. And unlike all of his brothers and all of his sisters, Jesus Christ would live in true righteousness and true purity in all of his life. And he would come as a humble servant shepherd. And yet he would come to rule and reign as king of kings and Lord of Lords. So that just as Jacob, Joseph, sorry, just as Joseph was despised and hated by his brothers, sold off into slavery as they sought his death, so Jesus Christ would be despised and rejected by men and women of all generations, of all time, being himself sold off into slavery as his brothers, his disciples, sought his death. And yet, just like Joseph, God would take all of the sin and hatred of Jesus' brothers and sisters, and through the cross, he would find a way to cleanse them of all of their sin, and to die and to rise again to new life, so that as he rises to new life, he might come as the true gracious one by his spirit and draw people into his word and convict them of their sin and humble them to recognize his royal rule and bow to him as they follow him into the place of blessing, the eternal promised land to come. As God, through the ultimate son of grace, the ultimate humble servant, shepherd king, in whom God displays the fullness of his grace, would build a people for himself, blessing them in this life and into the life to come. See, this is the true history of God's people. 
It's ultimately fulfilled in Christ through the cross. Which asks one final question. How does this relate to us today? The reality is that this evening, God calls us to come to the Son. But the reality is that you and I naturally hate him. Maybe that language makes you feel uncomfortable. But that's the language of the Bible. Naturally, we don't like him. You see, naturally, we do not like what he is. He's the center of the history of God's people. We don't like that. We make God's people, the church, about us. That's why we say things like, I didn't enjoy it. I'm not getting much out of it. How did you find it? As if church is about us. As if God's people is about us. It's not about us, it's about him. Naturally, we hate him being the center of God's people. And naturally, we hate what he represents. Grace. You know, I came across a man this week. I was speaking about the grace of Jesus, and he said, I don't believe what you say. He said, I believe in four or five key rules for life. Why would you choose law over grace? The Bible's a message of grace, and he chooses law. Why? Because grace says, I need God. Law says, I can do it myself. And naturally, we're little legalists. We think we don't need God. We think we can receive blessing and eternity without him. Naturally, we hate grace. Naturally, we hate how he lives. We don't like righteousness and purity. In accordance with God's word, that's why we ignore it. That's why there are certain passages and phrases and books that we want to skip over. That's why we come up with our own morality. We come up with our own sense of righteousness. We want to live life our own way. Because naturally we hate the righteousness of God. And naturally, we don't want his rule. We want to be king of our own lives. This evening as God brings us into the history of his people, just this introduction and the whole story's fleshed out as you read on into the rest of the book of Genesis. As God brings us into this this evening, he calls us to come to the Son. And through the cross, come. That he might renew us and restore us and remake us. So as to live lives in which he is the center of it all. That of every single thing you do in Rich Hill, every service you have, every sermon, every Bible study, every music group, every ministry, every activity, the sun is at the focus of it all. It all revolves around him. He is the center of it all. Not just in becoming a Christian, but in living your life. He 
is the center of it all. And to come and receive his grace. Not just in becoming a Christian, but in living out your life. To live a life of grace upon grace upon grace. That you may be people, we may be people of grace. And to come and through the cross, as he renews us and restores us, he may lead us in righteousness, to live righteously and purely in accordance with God's word, that we may love it and devour it and fill our minds and our hearts with it so that every thought and action and word is shaped by the Bible. Imagine if the people of Rich Hill had a reputation for people who, being people who love the Bible and that we may be a people who live completely and absolutely under the royal rule of Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling us to this evening. Not simply in becoming a Christian, although he calls us to do that tonight, but in living your Christian life here as the people of God and out there in the rest of the world. So this evening, as we come into the introduction of the history of God's people, and we hear that it's all about a son centered upon a son of grace, may we come to him and receive him. May this passage expose what we're really like, who we really are, and lead us to him, that in him we may truly live as the people of God. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the love of the Father for sending this Son of grace. We pray this evening that by your Holy Spirit you would lead us straight to the Son and that through the cross of Christ you may renew us and remake us so that the history of Rich Hill Presbyterian Church Maybe one that is all about the Son of Grace and people who love him and who live for him. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>